Section 28 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madison Rutherford. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rottweiler. Botany. Chapter 8. Growth and Variation In studying the growth of plants, says Reynolds Green, the relation which it bears to the processes of metabolism must be borne in mind. The constructed processes are much greater than those which lead to the disappearance of material from the plant body. The result of this is that there is a conspicuous increase in the substance of the plant as well as an accumulation of potential energy which can be made use of by the plant through various decompositions which its protoplasm can set up. The great permanent accumulation of material is what we associate with the processes of growth. Mere increase in weight in an organ does not, on the other hand, necessarily imply any growth. Growth, he continues, is in the strict sense always associated with the formation of new living substance, and is generally accompanied or immediately followed by additions to the framework of the growing cells or organs. It is nearly all cases attended by a permanent change of form. This is perhaps not so evident in the case of axial organs as it is in that of leaves and their modifications, though even in them it can be detected to a certain extent. It is much more conspicuous in the case of leaves for the latter, as they expand from the bud, have usually a different shape from that of the adult ones, and the assumption of the mature form is a gradual process, taking place as the age of the leaf increases. Growth may, in the light of the considerations just advanced, be denned as permanent increase of bulk, attended by permanent change of form. Growth in the lowliest plants may be coextensive with the plant body. In all plants of any considerable size, however, it is localized in particular regions, and in them it is associated with the formation of new protoplasts. In the sporophytes of all the higher plants, there exist certain regions in which the cells are merismatic, that is, which have the power of cell multiplication by means of division. In such regions, when a cell has reached a certain size, which varies with the individual, it divides into two, each of which increases to the original dimensions and then divides again. As these growing regions consist of cells, the growth of the entire organ or plant will depend on the behavior of the cells or protoplasts of which its marismatic tissues are composed. The growth of such a cell will be found to depend mainly upon five conditions. 1. There must be a supply of nutritive or plastic materials at the expense of which the increase of its protoplasm can take place and which supply the needed potential energy. 2. There must be a supply of water to such an extent as to set up a certain hydrostatic pressure in the cell. 3. The supply of water must be associated with the formation of osmotic substances in the cell, or it cannot be made to enter it. In the absence of the tergescence, which will be the result of the last two conditions, no growth is possible, for reasons that will presently appear. 4. The cell must have a certain temperature, for the activity of a protoplast is only possible within particular limits, which differ in the cases of different plants. 5. There must be a supply of oxygen to the growing cell, for, as we have seen, the protoplast is dependent upon this gas for the performance of its vital functions, and particularly for the liberation of the energy which is demanded in the constructed processes.
This is evident also from the consideration that the growth of the cells is attended by the growth and service of the cell wall, and as the latter is a secretion from the protoplasm, a product, that is, of its catabolic activity, such a decomposition cannot readily take place unless oxygen is admitted to it. Growth, so far as it implies only the formation of living substance, is thus a constructive process. It is, however, intimately associated with destructive metabolism or catabolism, the latter being involved in the construction of the increased bulk of the framework of the cell or cells, and being essential to supply the energy needed for the constructive processes. The process of the growth of a cell is limited in its extent, though the limits vary widely in different cases. In some, cells grow only to be a few times their original dimensions. In others, they may attain a very considerable size. In any case, however, we can notice that the rate of growth varies regularly throughout the process. It begins slowly, increases to a maximum, and then becomes gradually slower till it stops. This time during which these regular changes in the rate can be observed is generally spoken of as a grand period of growth. Closely connected with the metabolic activities of the plant and the release of energy for life processes is the phenomenon of digestion. In the simplest conception, digestion means merely the rendering soluble and assimilable of insoluble food substances. But the active agents of digestion, the enzymes, may, and in all likelihood do, have a far more intimate connection with the life of the cell than the mere preparation for absorption of food exterior to the actual living substance. The process of digestion in plants, continues Green, is chiefly intracellular and takes place in all cells in which reserve materials occur. It is only occasionally that it is found taking place on the exterior of the plant, that is, not in the interior of a cell. In a few cases, it is carried on in connection with the absorption of nitrogenous or protein food, as has been already shown. Digestion, though most generally associated in plants with the utilization of reserve materials, may thus occasionally be met with in connection with the absorption of food from without, when it is a process precisely similar to the digestive processes of the higher animals, though it is somewhat simpler in the details of its mechanism. The intracellular digestion of plants agrees very closely with that of many of the humbler animals, and corresponds also with such processes in the higher forms as the utilization of the glycogen of the liver and the fat of various regions. Absorption of food from without, after preliminary digestion, is much more frequently observed than when we study the nutritive processes of the fungi. Not only protein, but also carbohydrate and fatty substances are thus digested outside the body of the plant and the products of the digestion are subsequently absorbed. The protoplasm of the cell, among its many properties, no doubt has the power of setting up these decompositions, and probably in many of the very lowly plants, in which the whole organism consists of only a few protoplasts or perhaps a single one, the work is altogether affected by its instrumentality. The protoplast, in fact, carries out all the various processes of life by the interactions of its own living substance with the materials absorbed by it, aided in the constructive processes by the chlorophyll apparatus if it possesses one. In such a protoplast, we may observe at times the storage of such a reserve material as starch and its digestion at the appropriate period. Even in more complex plants, it is certain that the living substance of every protoplast is in a constant state of change, initiating many decompositions in which its own substance takes part, 
as well as others into the course of which it does not itself enter. Among these decompositions, we must include the various intracellular digestive processes. Though all protoplasm has this power, it is not usual in plants, any more than in animals, to find it exclusively relying on it. The work of digestion, at any rate, is generally carried out by peculiar substances which it forms or secretes for the purpose. We have in plants a large number of these secretions, which are known as enzymes, or soluble ferments. The action of these enzymes is not at all completely understood. They appear not to enter into the composition of the substances which are formed by their activity, and they seem to be capable of carrying out an almost indefinite amount of work without being used up in the process. They are inactive at very low temperatures, but affect the decompositions they set up freely at the ordinary temperature of the plant. As the temperature at which they are working is raised, their activity increases up to a certain point, which varies slightly for each enzyme, and is called its optimum point. This usually ranges between 30 and 45 degrees Celsius. If the temperature is raised above the optimum point, the enzyme becomes less and less active as it rises, and at about 60 to 70 degrees Celsius, it is destroyed. The exact point, however, varies a good deal in the cases of different enzymes. Enzymes work most advantageously in darkness or in a very subdued light. If they are exposed to the bright sunshine, they are gradually decomposed, the violet and ultraviolet rays being apparently most powerful in affecting their destruction. They are often injuriously affected by neutral salts, alkalis, or acids, though in this respect there exists considerable diversity throughout the group. The enzymes are manufactured by the protoplasm of the various cells in which they occur, being produced from its own substance in a manner somewhat similar to that of the formation of the cell wall. Usually their presence is accompanied by a marked granularity of the protoplasm due to the formation in it of an antecedent substance known as a zymogen, which is readily converted into the enzyme. This granularity does not, however, always occur, though we have reason to suppose that the secretion of the enzyme always takes place by successive stages. The zymogen has not, however, been definitely detected in all cases. While, as has been stated, the digestion of substances within the cell is the most common occurrence, there are right a few cases, even among the highly developed plants, where digestive ferments are excreted and act upon materials exterior to the cell itself. The absorption of food materials stored in the seed is often an instance of this, but more strikingly is it seen in the so-called carnivorous plants, such as the sundew, etc., that were so carefully investigated by Darwin. In the latter case, these plants can actually utilize the available nitrogenous material presented in the form of animal substance. In short, meat. This process of extracellular digestion is, however, more especially the attribute of the strictly parasitic or saprophytic plants, notably the lower fungi and the bacteria. Of necessity, they must digest from the substratum in which they grow the necessary food material, unless it happens to be presented to them in soluble and diffusible form, a circumstance of rare occurrence. The bacteria are the most important as well as familiar of such plants, and as producers of enormously vigorous fermentation for their size, there are no organisms which approach them. Their fermentative power has long been made use of in many industries, 
and at the present time is the especial study of preventive medicine in endeavoring to fully understand and guard against the deleterious effects of disease-breeding bacteria on the human organism. Associated with bacteria, in a purely physiological sense, and no other, are the highly degenerate fungi known as yeasts, the power of which in producing extracellular alcoholic fermentation has been known in a purely empirical way since prehistoric times. Tomains, toxins, indeed some of the poisons associated with so-called toadstools and snake venoms, are all enzymatic or fermentative in their nature, and a very small quantity of them is capable of producing relatively enormous changes in the substances on which they act, and come under the general physical class of catalytic agents. The present aim of bacteriological research, as applied to disease organisms, is to discover the best mode of combating the toxins, and that has been found in the antitoxins, which have the power of uniting the toxins and rendering them harmless, although it must be said that the manner in which they do this is not fully understood. The study of all classes of enzymatic substances in the living organism, plants as well as animals, is at present the field which promises more than any other to elucidate the mysteries of life processes, and with the aid of modern physical chemistry, the next few decades may mark a striking advance in man's knowledge of what living protoplasm really consists. The life of every plant is of limited duration, to quote from the textbook of botany by Strasburger, Knott, Schenck, and Karsten. Death ensues sooner or later, and the decayed remains form a part of the surface soil. All existing vegetable life owes its existence to the capacity inherent in all organisms of reproducing their kind. Reproduction is accordingly a vital power which must be exercised by every existing plant species. It is also evident from the very nature of reproduction that in the production of new organisms, a process of rejuvenation continually is being carried on. The descendants commence their development at a stage long since passed over by the parents. The physiological significance of sexual reproduction is not at once apparent. In many plants, the vegetative mode of reproduction is sufficient to secure the necessary multiplication of the species, so that plants are able to continue without sexual reproduction. Since monogenetic reproduction is sufficient for the preservation of the species, sexual reproduction must answer some purpose not attained by the vegetative mode of multiplication, for otherwise it would be altogether superfluous that the same plant, in addition to the vegetative, should also possess the sexual form of reproduction, which is so much more complicated and less certain. What makes digenetic reproduction especially different from monogenetic is the union of the substances of the parents and the consequent transmission and blending of the paternal and maternal properties. It is in this qualitative influence that the chief difference between sexual and vegetative reproduction is shown, and this may be regarded as a special advantage of sexuality. By vegetative reproduction, the quantitative multiplication of the individual is secured, while by sexual reproduction a qualitative influence is exerted. The vegetatively produced progeny consists of unmixed descendants. The sexually produced offspring, on the other hand, are the result of a blending of the parents. In vegetative multiplication, the complex of properties unfolded in the descendants does not, as a rule, differ from that possessed by the parent form. The sexually produced offspring, on the other hand, endowed with the properties of the father, can never be identical with the mother plant, but possess the properties of both parents. 
When these are divergent, they frequently play very different parts in the descendants, some dominant characters appearing conspicuously, while others, recessive characters, become less marked or remain completely latent. In this way, the descendants do not exhibit a uniform mean between the parents, but some may resemble the father, others the mother. These relations determine the character of the sexually produced descendants. Variations appearing in single individuals will, unless they are of an absolutely dominating character, become modified and ultimately lost by crossing with ordinary individuals. In such a case, sexual reproduction tends to maintain the constancy of the species. In other cases, as when one parent possesses new and dominant characters, or when both parents tend to vary in the same direction, the deviation from the ancestral form may be maintained or increased by sexual reproduction. The greatest tendency to variation commonly exhibited by hybrids illustrates how the equilibrium of the complex properties of a sexually produced individual is affected by divergent parental tendencies. But even as a result of ordinary fertilization, not only small and readily disappearing variations or fluctuating variations, but sometimes more striking ones occur, in which the offspring differs so strongly from the parents and characters which can be inherited that it appears to be a new species or subspecies. In such sudden variations, the occurrence of which von Kolliker and with them Korshinsky term heterogenesis, while de Vries more recently calls it mutation, these authors seek the starting points of the origin of new species. This would occur when a particular species passes from unknown causes into a period of mutation, such as de Vries demonstrated experimentally in Genothera lamarckiana. The fluctuating variations which largely determine the valuable characters of economic plants, example given the high percentage of sugar in the sugar beet, are in contrast to the mutations not fixed on inheritance. Careful and continued selection of the varying progeny is thus necessary to maintain the required standard of the race. Hugo de Vries himself says, in writing on this manner of variability, Before Darwin, little was known concerning the phenomena of variability. The fact that hardly two leaves on a tree were exactly the same could not escape observation. Small deviations of the same land were met with everywhere, among individuals as well as among the organs of the same plant. Darwin was the first to take a broad survey of the whole range of variations in the animal and vegetable kingdoms. His theory of natural selection is based on the fact of variability. His main argument is that the most striking and most highly adapted modifications may be acquired by successive variations. The direction of the adaptations will be determined by the needs in the struggle for life, and natural selection will simply exclude all such changes as occur on opposite or deviating lines. In this way, it is not variability itself which is called upon to explain beautiful adaptations, but it is quite sufficient to suppose that natural selection has operated during long periods in the same way. Eventually, all acquired characters being transmitted together would appear to us as if they had been simultaneously developed. Correlations must play a large part in such special evolutions. Darwin repeatedly laid great stress on this view, although a definite proof of its correctness could not be given in his time. Such proof requires the direct observation of a mutation. The new evening primroses which have sprung up in my garden from the old form of Genothera lamarckiana, and which have evidently been derived from it, in each case by a single mutation, do not differ from their parent species in one character only, 
but in almost all their organs and qualities. Some authors have tried to show that the theory of mutation is opposed to Darwin's views, but this is erroneous. On the contrary, it is in fullest harmony with the great principle laid down by Darwin. In order to be acted upon by that complex of environmental forces which Darwin has called natural selection, the changes must obviously first be there. The manner in which they are produced is of secondary importance and has hardly any bearing on the theory of descent with modification. A critical survey of all the facts of variability of plants, in nature as well as under cultivation, has led me to the conviction that Darwin was right in stating that those rare beneficial variations from time to time happen to arise, the so-called mutations are the real source of progress in the whole realm of the organic world. The origin of new species, which is in part the effect of mutability, is, however, due mainly to natural selection. Mutability provides the new characters and new elementary species. Natural selection, on the other hand, decides what is to live and what to die. Mutability seems to be free and not restricted to previously determined lines. Selection, however, may take place along the same lines in the course of long geological epochs, thus directing the development of large branches of the animal and vegetable kingdoms. In natural selection, it is evident that nutrition and environment are the main factors, but it is probable that while nutrition may be one of the main causes of mutability, environment may play the chief part in the decision ascribed to natural selection. Dr. Daniel T. MacDougall, in a lecture published in 1905, tells us that scattered through the literature of botany and horticulture of the last century are scores of records of the sudden appearance of sports and forms of the aspect of species which fully support all of the conclusions drawn from the observations on the evening primroses. An examination of the facts, easily brought together, allows us to see that certain general principles in the organization of the plant and in its behavior in these breaks or saltations in heredity may be made out. The first and most important of these is one which was advanced by de Vries speculatively before he began his experiments in heredity, namely that the plant is essentially a complex group of indivisible unit characters. These unit characters may not always be expressed or recognizable in external anatomical characters since they may be in a latent condition or totally inactive. Popular belief in the influence of environment and the inheritance of acquired characters finds its commonest expression and that plants have been changed by cultivation. Domesticated races are spoken of as garden forms by botanists and horticulturists, with the implication that they are specialized types resulting from the effects of tillage. Now, so far as actual cultivation is concerned, this assumption is without foundation, since at the present time no evidence exists to show that the farm, garden, or nursery has ever produced alterations which were strictly and continuously inheritable, or were present except under environic conditions similar to those by which the alterations were produced, although vague statements and erroneous generalizations to the contrary are current. It is true, of course, that structural and physiological changes may be induced in a strain of plants in any generation, which may persist in a share to the second, or even in some degree to a third, but no longer. Some very important operations of the market gardener and the farmer are dependent upon this fact. The matter of general scientific agriculture opens an immense field, says H.M. Richards. The scientific care of our forests, for trees may be regarded as a crop 
and their culture agriculture is a question to which we, in this country, are awakening none too soon. Forestry, as practiced in Europe, demanding as it does expert botanical knowledge, perhaps not by the foresters themselves but by those who direct their labors, has saved what were the fast-diminishing wooded areas. The scientific rotation of crops, the use of fertilizers, and the study of the physical and chemical condition of the soil in connection with the living plants, continues Professor Richards, involve certain questions which may mean the success or failure of much farming. These questions can only be settled by careful investigations which take into consideration the nature of the plants themselves as well as the physical conditions of their environment. Some say that knowledge along this line has been satisfactorily handed down from father to son, that the farmer knows his business better than does the scientist, but it is a patent fact that this is not so. For instance, many a farm which has been damaged for a long period of years by the overliming of the soil might have been spared had the farmer of 50 years ago had the knowledge which we now have of the relation of lime to the other mineral substances needed by the plant, of when to apply it and when to withhold it. It is the difference between merely empirical knowledge and that which is based on scientific principles. When the contest comes between virgin soil and long-tilled land, the latter, no matter how rich it may once have been, must needs be cultivated more intensively if it is to hold its own. Intensive cultivation requires the aid of special information, and it is here that scientific agriculture comes into play. Few people realize that without artificial fertilizers, the direct outcome of highly theoretical work on the raw foodstuffs of plants, much of the farming of today would be almost impossible, and the proper use of fertilizers is but one of many questions. We are coming now in this country to a stage in its development when scientific agriculture must be seriously considered. Fortunately, it is being so considered, and the federal and state establishments devoted to the investigation of these agricultural questions may confidently be expected, I think, to help in the solving of the practical economic questions that must arise in the competition of our own agriculture with that of other lands. The way it must be done is by the introduction of improved methods based on carefully conducted scientific research that often find their stimulus in the highly theoretical investigations of the pure scientist. Thus must the so-called impractical devotee of science come in contact with the practical man of affairs and furnish him knowledge that can be used for the benefit of all. End of section 28. Botany, Growth and Variation. Recording by Madison Rutherford. End of the Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6, Zoology and Botany. Edited by Francis Rotwheeler.